You are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas and events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which is located on the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is comprised of the Siksika, Pikane, and Gainai First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakota, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here at the Department of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Just a caution before we get started. This podcast is for a mature audience and deals with topics, commentary, and depictions of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm Gavin Cameron, one of the hosts for this episode. I'm joined by my co-host, Maureen Hebert. Hi, Gavin. Hi, everyone. And Josh Goldstein. Hi, Gavin. Hi, Maureen. Hello. Great to be with you in the studio, Maureen and Josh. Normally, each episode of our Oddities of Violence podcast finds us exploring some issues that lies at the margins of the study of terrorism, the study of genocide, or the philosophy of violence. Since this is our first episode in the 10-part series, we wanted to give our listeners a taste of this strange but fascinating project we call the Oddities of Violence, the topics that you'll hear about and some of the people you'll hear from, including ourselves. This podcast is tied to a wider project supported by Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council on oddities of violence that will ultimately be both a workshop in June this year and an edited book. On that note, let me pass the hosting duties off to Maureen. To get us started, I'd like to quickly go around the table for the audience to get a sense of our respective research areas, the history of political thought, terrorism studies, and genocide studies, and how we came to work together on this Oddities of Violence project. Josh, let's start with you. Um, what led you to become a political philosopher focusing on the history of political thought, and more specifically, the political philosopher G.W.F. Hegel? Great. Thanks. I, I think there's, um, there's a thought that people who are interested in, in politics are, are interested in, in power, and, and I realized pretty soon in my undergraduate uh, degree that I was much more interested in the ways that we think about what we do with power than I was actually interested in the way power is institutionalized mm. and present mm -hmm. in political parties and all the usual things that we normally take uh, to be to be politics. And I was also like greatly relieved when I realized, well, there's a whole area of political science that studies how we think about power rather than about how power is used, deployed, and, and so on. And that area, of course, is political philosophy. And when I was going through my undergraduate and graduate degree, the history of political thought was the main entry point into how we think about political philosophy. So that's what I became most interested in. And, and even as the field itself has greatly expanded, become much more radically ecumenical in the sense of taking in different traditions and voices and so on, that I was still really interested in the, the history of political thought and the history of Western political thought. I just really enjoyed the kinds of questions that were being asked, the the solutions that were being proposed to this deep puzzle of how it is that we live together. How is it that we formulate different conceptions of what we ought to do and how we ought to live? And, and so I, I, stayed, I stayed within that field and I came to do my doctoral work and my continuing research to, to some extent on this German philosopher of the 19th century, GWF, Hegel, and, and at first I became interested in him for a kind of selfish, maybe, kind of, uh, kind of reason. I found his work, as most people do, just like impenetrable, enormously famous, and just enormously obscure thinker. And I thought, wow, well, i got to figure this out, and I want to <laughs> figure this, right. this, this out. And like any 
thing worth spending your time on, the more that you spend time with it, the more rich you see that it is worthwhile spending that that effort. And and I guess I could sum up the two reasons that I that I still dwell with Hegel's uh, thought, and and I guess I could maybe express it using two aphorisms that Hegel himself uses, and and they're famous enough that maybe some people have have also heard of them. Uh, and the the first deals with this idea that the world in which we live is not incomprehensible to to us, that it is ultimately knowable, and we can live with dwell in thought with within it. And that that expression is what is rational is actual and what is actual is rational, that thinking and being in the world are not separate things. And I thought that was just a really inspiring idea. And the second, this much more human one, that this world is ultimately a place and possibility of, of joy, not depression and alienation, although these are obviously things that we experience. And, and Hegel has this beautiful little aphorism, here is the rose, dance here. And, and these, two, um, uh, these two expressions, I think, have, have still, still animated me, even as I go on and work in, uh, work in, in other areas. Well, that's so interesting. Of course, I, I know all of this because I can reveal, I think, to the audience that Josh and I are married. And in fact, we met in a second year, essentially introduction to history and political philosophy course. Uh, Gavin, uh, you and I, of course, met much later as colleagues here at the University of Calgary. So how about you? How do you end up as an international relations scholar specializing in terrorism and, and counterterrorism? Well, I think my story is somewhat more prosaic than... Uh, so is mine, <laughs> as we will hear. <laughs> um, but I started out uh, doing history and, in, and medieval history in mm. particular, um, because that was just something that I found fascinating. But I also grew up in uh, Britain, in the UK, in the sort of 70s and 80s. Um, when the threat of Northern Irish terrorism was mm. a very real part of mm. society. And as I came towards the end of my undergrad uh, uh, sort of program, I started thinking, well, what next? And I had this opportunity to go to um, St. Andrews University and to take uh, a program in international relations, mm. which dealt with many of the things that I liked about history, but in, at that point, the 20th century. So right. sort of extrapolating many of these parts of history that I liked, but into the 20th century. So looking at things like international security and, and sort of diplomatic relations mm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. But the program at St. Andrews um, specialized in the study of terrorism, and that really excited me, and that was a, a key reason that I went to mm -hmm. St. Andrews, because it hadn't occurred to me that you could actually look at this phenomenon that, that was a real part of my growing up experience in Britain. Um, it hadn't occurred to me that you could look at that as a sort of academic topic of, of, of consideration. Um, so that affected where I went to, um, to, to grad school, um, and, it engaged me enough through my graduate programs that that also shaped my choices in terms of where my research focus has been for really most of the rest of my subsequent career. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me, I came to study uh, genocide as a political scientist, uh, in sort of halfway in between comparative politics, which I turned to in my master's, and international relations, which is really my focus as an undergrad. And I, I did this in a very unscholarly kind of way. I finished all of my coursework at the PhD level. It was time to write my dissertation proposal, and I realized that the original topic, which had nothing to do with genocide, that I came to uh, the University of Toronto to work on was something I was absolutely no longer interested in. So <laughs> I had this choice. I either like leave the program, which I was considering doing, and then Josh over here, uh, and of course, we were doing our PhDs together at the time. He said, well, why don't you do your PhD dissertation on something you are interested in? So while I was kind of casting around for, you know, something to to do and, and maybe even leaving the program, on my own time, I started reading histories of the Holocaust. And it was really from that that 
I came to the question that I've been basically chewing on ever since I, I turned to genocide studies, and that was basically, you know, why do they do it? As a political scientist, it really blew my mind that not just in the Holocaust, but in cases before that and many cases since, we have senior political leaders uh, who basically choose as a matter of policy to target a particular group or groups simply because of who they are and because they continue to exist. And so I've, I've looked at this from a bunch of different angles. I've tried to account using a kind of constructivist, identity-focused model, trying to account for how it is these decision-makers reach this decision. I've written a bit about genocide prevention and, and why it's not usually successful. And now I'm looking at the role that law does and doesn't play, depending on regime type and, and different form of genocide, in the perpetration of the crime of genocide, not just its prevention and punishment. Um, so let me just continue now with my hosting duties. Uh, um, now that we've reviewed our intellectual origin stories, uh, the question listeners might be asking is how did a political philosopher a terrorism specialist, and a genocide studies scholar end up working together. Now, the terrorism and genocide connection isn't too surprising, and, and indeed there have been projects that include both as instances of political violence. But how in the world did we end up working with a Hegel scholar? Now, I should say that this collaboration didn't happen recently or all at once, but instead unfolded over the last 10 or so years over two projects. The first was between Gavin and Josh, and the second uh, was between me and Josh. Um, so Gavin, Josh, uh, tell us a little bit about the earlier project and how you got the ball rolling. Okay. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start off and then I'll pass it off to, to Gavin because I remember the beginning of this very, very clearly. It was uh, Gavin was and I were chatting outside of my office and we were chatting about the terror in the in the French Revolution as as one as one does and I was and I was giving Gavin the account of the terror that Hegel develops who himself had in his young adulthood in Germany lived through the events of the revolution and the terror and followed it assiduously. He kept up to date on this, what seemed to him, this world historic event that was indicated a transformation of the, of the world. And it occupied his mind. And he tried to think through how this could have happened in terms of a kind of self-understanding, what new understandings of the self and the community could give rise to this auto-annihilation. And I gave this account to Gavin, and I remember Gavin, and I, he could take it up at, at this point, saying that is so different than how the terrorism literature generally understands why the terror had, had occurred. So the French Revolution and the terror more specifically is often taken as the start of terrorism, even in terms of the, the terminology. Uh, the start of terrorism in its sort of more modern understanding. Um, and obviously the terror uh, within the French Revolution is a primarily state-driven mm -hmm. phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the subsequent accounts of terrorism uh, focus more on the sub-state uh, level in terms of, of perpetrators of violence, although that's one of the problem, very much problematized areas within terrorism studies of who, who are the potential perpetrators. Um, but, but you sort of have this account within terrorism studies where the French Revolution has this key sort of foundational role um, and you sort of have accounts that, that look at um, uh, terrorism, uh, as uh, Walter Lecoeur called it, avant la lettre, before the term. Right, right. Um, uh, and so, so you have this sort of foundational moment. But why it's a foundational moment is as much to do with the terminology as to do with... Uh, 
something more sort of um, ontological. And so Josh and I were talking about the role of the French Revolution within our respective sort of core literatures. And it became clear that what we meant by the, what we understood the significance of the French Revolution to be was different, but also what was meant by modernity mm, was mm -hmm. different, that we had this foundationally different understanding of the concept of modernity. And about the same time, we discovered that there was actually a conference that was addressing this very issue, the idea of modernity and terrorism. And having had this discussion, realized that we had these two totally different accounts of what modernity was and therefore what, how, sorry, how modernity might relate to terrorism, we actually thought that there was a potential for a joint, a joint paper at this conference. So we ended up writing a, a conference paper mm. um, and subsequently an article where we explored how modernity and terrorism might interrelate. So it, might it be, for example, a purely chronological connection? Mm -hmm. um, might it be a technological understanding of what constitutes modernity? Or might it be some deeper, more fundamental account of the significance of modernity and how it might relate to particular types of violence. So that was the that was the sort of initiation of, of the project. And as I say, we, we did a conference paper and we did an article. Um, and I think some of the things that we had raised didn't seem to us to have been completely resolved. So there was more work to be done at some point. But that was that was sort of the initial phase there. Yeah, absolutely. And so interestingly, uh, I came to work with Josh on a kind of follow-on project. These two weren't planned to go together, but basically, you know, one day Josh was standing in our kitchen describing the, I think then, conference paper that him and Gavin were working on. And it struck me that particularly Hegel's account of the terror of the French Revolution could help me understand something I'd never really been able to make sense of in a case I'd been working on for a long time in genocide studies, and that was the Cambodian genocide. Now, it wasn't actually the genocidal part of the Cambodian case that I was puzzled about, even though it has a bunch of very particular and odd features that one of our uh, contributors, uh, James Tyner, will tell us about in a couple of episodes down the road, but it's the parallel um, uh, state terror directed inward at the Revolutionary Army and Party that seemed to become more and more intense as time went on. It seemed to spread to include more people, and it seemed to be completely limitless. And I never understood this. Even the Stalinist terror in the 1930s has an end point. It runs from 1936 roughly to 1938, but this had no end to it. And so this is when Josh and I started working together. And what the uh, his perspective, which he'll talk about in just a second, or his contribution, I should say, uh, helped illuminate was that in the Khmer Rouge ideology, there was this idea of, you know, revolutionary consciousness, a correct revolutionary consciousness. But this correct revolutionary consciousness meant that those within the revolution, people who are not enemies of the revolution, but part of the revolution, had to have a form of entirely collective behavior. All thought needed to be kind of collective. It had to come from all, and it had to be for all in the revolutionary community. And this meant that individualism became explicitly a prohibited thing. And so it, it became a the situation that no matter what a cadre in the party or in the revolutionary army did or thought or didn't do or said or didn't say could become suspect because, of course, any time an individual does something, no matter how committed to the revolution they were, of course had to have some foundation in their own individual action. But that was something that was essentially prohibited by the leadership and their outsized understanding of revolutionary consciousness. So maybe, Josh, can you just sort of maybe chip in here and, and maybe give the kind of philosophical 
resources we use to make that argument. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So the the real paradox or 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 puzzle here is how we have on the one side these claims about the individual as being infinitely infinitely important, the idea of liberation or freedom all on one side, and then simultaneously we have this crushing of the individual. We have a virtual the virtual enslavement of individuals within a camp system. We have the complete mm-hmm. removal of individual identity. So how do these two things fit together? And you could just say, well, they're just two parallel strands. And one of the really important things that Hegel's philosophy tries to give us is is the tools to think how two things which appear to be opposite might nonetheless be related to one another. And, and one of the insights into his analysis of the French Revolution is that if we really think seriously about an idea of individual selfhood as a kind of subjective will that matters, that that ironically produces the need to come up with tests to confirm that your will is really your will and not secretly someone else's. Exactly. And those tests become a form of free community so that the community ironically holds the very standards of your own freedom and then comes to test your freedom. And so it affirms the individual, all law must come from all and apply to all. But who gets to determine whether that's happening? Well, the community does. And what comes to indicate that maybe it's not really you, but some secret sectarian force that's speaking. Well, it's the anything that stands apart from the universal community, from the us, from the we. And there's this unfortunate fact that every individual is, as Maureen said, particular, stands at a particular place, looks a particular way, has a particular tone to their voice, stands in particular ways. And no matter how much you try and make them uniform, you can't get rid of that particularity. And every moment of particularity seems to stand as an enemy to the community. Well, what can you do with it? You can only have people wear so many of the same uniforms or have their hair cut the same way. They still look a little different and talk a little different. But you got to get rid of that particularity as a danger to the universal community. And what's the only way to do it? Well, after a while, it becomes the literal extermination of those mm-hmm. individuals. And so it was that connection, what Hegel in the fancy word calls dialectic, between these two seemingly opposite things that seem to provide in this one particular genocidal process within the larger uh, Cambodian genocide. Hegel seemed to provide kind of insight how to how to make sense of this otherwise just craziness that was going on in the world. Exactly, because the, the kind of more typical or more familiar logic of genocide, which the Khmer Rouge unleash on the enemies of the revolution, just really didn't seem to explain this. This brings us to the current project. It has two key elements I think would be useful to quickly talk about today that frame the project. The first is the distinction we develop in our earlier projects between ontologically and chronologically modern violence, and the second is the oddities of violence. Perfect. Yeah, sure. That that's a, a really excellent, uh, really excellent question. And Gavin can can chip in too. He already alluded to mm-hmm. to this important distinction, and and this distinction between ontological violence and chronological violence, or ontologically modern violence and chronologically modern violence, that that Gavin already had alluded to, uh, became important for us in our in our project on the French Revolution as we began to think. Well, how is violence connected to the modern age, or how is violence connected to any age? And it seemed to us there were two, two main ways to, to think about it. A much more standard way, well, every violence occurs at some time, 
And so some violence is going to occur in the modern time, in medieval times, in ancient times, in some future times there will be, there will be violence. And this kind of violence doesn't have any essential connection to the age. It just happens to, to, occur, to occur there. And it occurs there for maybe pragmatic reasons. There is an obstacle. We got to get through this obstacle. What's the best way? Let's apply violence to it until that obstacle is is gone. And so violence is a kind of tool, a tool that may be useful in particular situations, and those situations crop up at any time. So we call that kind of pragmatic violence or tool-like use of, of violence, we call that chronological violence. That is, it happens at certain times, but there's no essential connection between the violence and the character of the age. And then we were, we were thinking, wait, if we really want to get at an idea of modern violence, then there has to be some essential connection between, you could put it this way, the spirit of the age, the essence of the age, some uniqueness about that age and, and violence. And, and we began to think, well, what would that criteria be? And, and Hegel here, we, we thought, was, uh, was helpful. And so we developed this concept, ontologically modern violence, to capture that type of violence that emerges because of the essence or nature of, of the age, and not all kind of violence that happens in modernity then would be ontologically modern violence, that is, connected to the essence of the age, but some of it might be. And we, we wanted to be have a way to be on the lookout for that kind of violence that is rooted in the, in the nature of the age. And as, as you, Maureen, had nicely mentioned, we think that one of the features of any ontologically modern violence is that it is connected to a unique idea of the individual self as infinitely important, but that can play out in all sorts of very unexpected, uh, unexpected ways. Good, excellent. Uh, Gavin, how about the oddities part? Why are we talking about the oddities of violence here? So essentially we wanted to find uh, a way of um, grounding ontological versus chronological violence in, in a way that made it uh, both more accessible in some respects, but also enabled us to say something about the connection between violence and um, a standard accounts of particular varieties of violence that, that exist particularly in the genocide studies and the terrorism studies literatures. Um, so it's sort of trying to bring together multiple multiple literatures, all talking about um, parallel things, but using different intellectual resources to do so. And the, they do exist in parallel. Mm -hmm. they, they don't inform each other to a large extent. Um, and, and that's sort of how we ended up with a, this sort of general project where we've got the philosophy of violence, we've got the genocide studies scholars, and we've got terrorism studies scholars, and we're sort of bringing them together at, and trying to um, get them to realize that in many cases they're talking about very similar things, mm -hmm. but bringing different resources to bear on those, on those accounts. So we're bringing together uh, empirical case studies of what we're calling oddities of violence. Um, so they're going to be historical and contemporary instances of terrorism and genocide that do not easily fit within existing theorizations of these phenomena. Um, and we're bringing the literature of philosophies of violence into these discussions because we think that just as we did with the earlier projects, this offers the possibility for providing new insight mm -hmm. into these accounts. Um, so, so again, this is back to the sort of three, three literatures being brought together within, within one project. And by problematizing our understanding of violence, the project opens up new possibilities, we hope, <laughs> for the study of terrorism, <laughs> genocide, and the philosophy of violence. And we're also going to include a range of disciplinary perspectives um, 
So we're going to have, as I said, a, a variety of different accounts, but disciplinary, different disciplinary accounts as well. So um, not just political science, we're all three political scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is not just going to be political scientists talking amongst themselves. This is going to be, for example, class a classicist or a, a geographer um, or a historian. Um, so a variety of different accounts of, of these issues that we're talking about. And will we say, too, that the, that the kind of standard account or a more pragmatic account of the nature of, of violence like so dominates that, that one of the reasons that we're looking for odd cases is, is because we're looking for things that stand outside of this kind of tool-like interpretation of, of, of violence? And what, so one of the things that we uh, hope to do with each of these case studies that are essentially problematic from, from um, some accounts of, of, of their particular variety of violence is that we want to pose questions about some of these uh, deep-rooted assumptions, in some cases assertions, yes. within those literatures and to look at them with with cases that don't comfortably fit within these accounts of say terrorism or genocide um, and in the process bring new intellectual resources to see if we can answer them in a slightly different way than those standard literatures do right yeah i think that i think that beautifully captures what we what we do intend to do both with this odd set what could seem like an odd set of expert experts coming together and an odd set of cases coming together but then of course we were all really attentive to this to this need like okay we got to bring some make sure there's some order in this exactly. potential <laughs> in this potential chaos and and so one of the things that we all decided on one way to bring a little bit of order to it was to group them according to temporal periods and so we're dividing up in the in the workshop, although the podcasts are going to come in different different orders, depending on people's availability and and all of that, we're organizing the workshop and the edited book around three large periods. One we call Genesis, this way in which violence kind of erupts into human history and becomes this object of literature and reflection and philosophy and history. And our second period we call archetype, where we find what are normally, as Gavin and Maureen were saying, the, the central cases of terrorism and genocide like the Holocaust for, for genocide or the French Revolution for, for terrorism. And we wanted to say, well, what else is going on in this period of time that is seen to, to establish the archetypal forms of genocide and terrorism? And then thirdly, we were interested in, well, well what might be coming on the horizon? And so we have a third section, novelty. And which deals with this question, so how would we know if something new is emerging into the world, some new motivations, new reasons, new shapes of, of violence? And, and so while we don't have the, the answers, we hope that by bringing these uh, exciting and erudite and accessible folks together that we'll, we'll maybe have some interesting answers or at least pose some really interesting questions that can motivate other folks in the future to to carry on this this research so that's our oddities of violence workshop and book project but this podcast series is something related to it but it's a little bit different what we're basically trying to do in the podcast is to share with a wider audience uh, beyond the academy in an accessible way how the contributors to our project, in their own words, as our guests, these odd cases or odd and alternative accounts we were just talking about, uh, about terrorism and genocide with additional insights we think that will be really generative and interesting from 
our philosophy of violent scholars. I think we also hope that by looking at terrorism and genocide across time and geography and from different disciplinary perspectives, we can perhaps answer some questions about these forms of violence listeners might have, or maybe even to clear up some common misperceptions about what terrorism and genocide is and is not. So Gavin, why don't you lead us off and give our listeners a taste of the odd cases of terrorism that we're going to see in our Genesis section, our archetype section, and our novelty section. Okay, thanks, Josh. Our Genesis uh, example of terrorism is by Johannes Dillinger, and it examines concerns about organized arson in early modern Europe. And obviously, arson is not something that's typically associated with terrorism. Those are typically seen as different, a different type of violence. Oh, okay. Um, and in early modern Europe, um, the culprit of organized arson was typically deemed to be an outsider, and the campaign of arson would have a foreign mastermind. Hmm. The reality is that such organized arson was an imaginary construct. Wow, okay. But the response to the potential danger shows striking parallels to more recent counterterrorism campaigns, intense fear and interest, additional laws and mechanisms of state, and increased international cooperation to address the threat. Our archetype case study of terrorism is by Orr Honig, and it looks at three killings of Nazi leaders by Jewish assassins before World War II. The case makes us consider whether terrorism is always illegitimate. The basis of strategic choice for violence, so why choose a particular tactic over another? And what the consequences particular attacks can have in shaping subsequent events. And then our novelty case of terrorism will assess the threat of incel violence. It asks why attacks against women have been traditionally undervalued as a form of political violence. Mm. It asks the consequences of that underrepresentation within the literature and policy response. And finally, whether incel violence is indicative of a wider evolution in terrorism. Oh, that's, that's excellent. Maureen, your turn. Sure. So for the genocide, uh, genesis, archetype, and novelty, all three of our contributors challenge in really interesting and important ways some standard explanations or ideas we have about this particular crime. So we start on the Genesis side with a classicist, Tristan Taylor. He looks at two cases many centuries apart. One is the familiar sacking of Carthage, uh, and the second one is the attack on the Christian and Manichaean uh, religious minorities. And what basically uh, Taylor argues is that we first of all, need to overcome a kind of standard view that genocide is something that only happens in modernity because it requires a modern state and modern ideas. Mm -hmm. And instead, he says that the sacking of Carthage uh, occurs, of course, without this kind of modern apparatus, and it also needs to be seen as something that is genocidal rather than just a ancient way of making war that involves the, the sacking of cities and massacre and so on. Instead, he says that in this particular case, we have a set of anxieties that the Romans had about Carthage and its continued existence. Then he adds that if we fast forward many centuries to the attack on the Christians and the Manichaeans, it's a similar kind of story in that the Roman Empire finds the continued existence, particularly of the Christians, to be threatening and, and causes, again, a form of existential anxiety. But interestingly, he says, the attack on them, the attempt to eliminate them as a group and therefore a threat, doesn't take a physical form as it would much later in the modern era. If we move on to the archetype one, interestingly, our scholar James Tyner, who is a geographer, does not reference the Holocaust. So usually when we think about the archetype of genocide, we think we're going to talk about the Holocaust. But his case is 
something I've already talked about here today, the genocide in Cambodia by the communist Khmer Rouge regime from 1975 to 1979. On the one hand, he of course acknowledges that there is a, an intent to destroy particular groups uh, within Cambodia who are seen to be enemies of the revolution, but he argues that the vast majority of people who die during the genocide actually do so because of the hyper-collectivist very modern, not regressive, but very modern policies that the Khmer Rouge bring in. So they have this very kind of collectivist view to economic agricultural production, which leads to all sorts of very poor uh, economic uh, outcomes that lead to starvation, disease, and so on. And what happens is that we have genocide through a process of we, what he calls letting die, rather than always a kind of intentional attack on particular groups and the application of direct violence. And then in the novelty section, we have a legal scholar, uh, Fanny Lafontaine. Uh, she gives us a kind of, again, challenge to the dominant narrative of a case. Uh, she looks at something that's literally very close to home for all of us, the residential schools here in Canada and their inherently genocidal nature. There are basically two ways that we usually look at that this case from a legal perspective that she uh, interrogates and calls into question. The first dominant view, and it's been used here in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, is that what happened in the residential schools was cultural genocide. But this is something, she correctly points out, is actually not something that's in the Genocide Convention for, for reasons that I, I won't get into here. She also challenges the idea that the forcible removal of children into the schools, which is something that's in the Genocide Convention, the forcible removal of children, isn't the only method of destruction that the Canadian government and the churches who ran these schools carried out. Her argument instead is that the... Indian residential school system almost entirely conforms with all elements of the Genocide Convention. The mental element, the intent to destroy a group in whole or in part as such, and that that destruction took up almost all of the methods of destruction, five in total, that are articulated in the Genocide Convention. Uh, Josh, how about you? What are our um, political philosophy and other philosophical contributors going to, to talk about? So we have three really exciting uh, guests and contributors to the to the project. Within the Genesis section, we have another classicist, Rachel Bruzzone, who looks at the cataclysmic struggle between the ancient empires of Athens and Sparta in in Greece, and she looks at this conflict through an individual, Thucydides who both fought in this conflict as a general on the Athenian side and thought deeply about the nature of the violence that he was experiencing and helping to uh, perpetuate as well. And he was shocked by the way this violence between these, these two... Greek city-states was slipping all bounds and restrictions. And what Rachel is going to recover for us is his idea that it isn't necessarily ideas which are generating the conflict, but rather that war itself can deform our own ideas and thoughts. And it the war itself shapes us rather than us shaping the war. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Within the archetype section, we're going to have one of our colleagues, a fellow political philosopher, Barry Cooper, on, and he'll be using the thought of German-American philosopher Eric Vogelin, who was trying to make sense of his own firsthand experiences escaping from the Nazis, in, in Austria, and then coming to, to America. And Vogelin is going to emphasize the particular role that what he calls magical thinking or a second reality plays in creating a unique or odd dynamic of violence that stands completely apart from more pragmatic attempts at reshaping the world that we are familiar with in in our everyday in our everyday uh, 
uh, politics. And Vogelin will help us get a grip on why certain political movements can initiate or tend towards this magical thinking and this uniquely destructive dynamic of, of violence. So it'll be a really exciting conversation. Our third contributor is also a political philosopher. She is Marta Boshovsky, and she comes to us from the University of Regina. She's a very innovative young scholar who helps us try to think about novelty in violence. And she gets us to ask two really important questions about how we make sense of violence. The, the first is to ask, are we giving new labels to old shapes of violence? And if we are, to then ask further, well, why are we doing that? What is the politics involved, the political logic or imperative that would cause us to say this phenomena is somehow disconnected from everything that went before it? So I think that's really, really exciting to ask both of those questions. And second, she also notices that we can give old labels to what actually appear to be new shapes of violence so that we are essentially refusing to see mm -hmm. what is new in front of us. And then she asked that second question, so what would lead to that as the political response to what is new to deny the novelty and try and assimilate it or connect it to patterns that have always been? What would lead to that political response? So I think it'll be a fantastic, uh, fantastic conversation on how we make sense of the new. Thanks, Josh and Maureen. None of these podcasts would be possible without the assistance of our research assistant and audio technician, Alejandra Vives. Alejandra, tell us a little bit about the behind-the-scenes work that you're doing with our Oddities of Violence podcast series. Um, so behind the scenes is mostly me wrestling with the editing software <laughs> and because I'm learning to use it. There's also a lot of admin work to be done with uh, scheduling uh, the interviews with our guests, which are, who are ac across the world. So uh, it can be tricky to get in touch sometimes. Uh, there's uh, dealings with the studio where we need to uh, make the bookings to make sure we have the space. Uh, there's art for the show that needed to be kind of like arranged. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's uh, that's uh, what I do. I talk to people mostly. Basically, oh. it's everything that gets <laughs> all of this to work. Uh, that is very true. Yeah, uh, more or less. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a joy for sure. Well, you've, you've, you've lifted the, lifted the, the hood on this particular <laughs> car to reveal the, the messiness that's involved in getting, in getting this to work. The unglamorous side of research assistant work, but, uh, which as Maureen said, we absolutely could not do. Uh, I think any academics who might happen to be listening will know how much we, we depend on the, the administrative competence of our, uh, of our research uh, assistants. But, but Alejandra, of course, you're so much more than just a research assistant. In real life, you are a student of political philosophy who is just finishing up your bachelor's degree and about to enter into an MA thesis program here at the University of Calgary Congratulations. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in political philosophy and what you hope to work on? I know I know it's early days, but give us a give us a taste. Well, I so I started out in university as an not an English major, uh, a literature major back in Venezuela. So a lot of South American literature deals with uh, political processes that are happening in the region. And specifically, I became really interested in, in literary, literary theory. 
uh, because a lot of political theory kind of like overlaps mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, with literary theory. I was studying uh, Hobbes and Rousseau and the postmodern theory, post-structuralist theory. Um, and I just found that it was really helpful in providing a language to describe mm. uh, many of my everyday experiences that did not really make sense in in a traditional way. Uh, so I applied to study abroad and switched to political science. And, and I'm, yeah, to this day, really interested in political philosophy. As for what I hope to be working on, um, so I'm really interested in the place of suffering in our lives. I think suffering, I mean, we, we are in a podcast about uh, violence, but I think suffering is a little more easy to conceptualize. For me, it's a little more objective because not every form of violence is experienced mm. by people mm -hmm. as violence. Yeah, it's true. But suffering is like a very specific, very, very kind of like real experience. And I think that uh, we just haven't come up with models that uh, effectively make sense of what we should do with it like she would get rid of it uh what does it mean to get rid of suffering in the world is all suffering bad stuff like that um and its implications for politics and uh i'm also interested in perpetrator trauma and specifically mm. the kind of suffering that leads people to cause more suffering interesting yeah yeah fantastic well it'll be great for all of us to follow your intellectual journey over the next couple of years and we're so glad to have you in the department this this september and of course so wonderful to have you associated with the with the podcast and with the workshop and edited book as as well That's all for our inaugural podcast. Thanks to Alejandra, Josh, and Maureen for joining me today to discuss our Oddities of Violence podcast series and workshop. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. All of our contributors you'll hear on this podcast series will be at the University of Calgary on June 9th to 10th this year for our Oddities of Violence workshop. Our workshop was made possible through funding by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you want to know more about the project, drop by or live stream the workshop. Details will be on the Oddities of Violence website. You have been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Our podcast is produced and edited by Alejandra Vivas. Thanks, Alejandra. With support from the great team at CJSW. Join us for our next episode when we begin our discussion in the ancient world and the attempt by the Athenian general Thucydides to make sense of the world-shaking violence that gripped the Spartan and Athenian empires during the Peloponnesian War. Our guest then will be Rachel Bruzzoni from Bilket University in Turkey, and your host for that podcast will be Josh Goldstein. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.